Now we come to chapter 9, and here in chapter 9, we have a fifth judgment here, and this is the murrain on the cattle. And let me read this. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if thou refuse to let them go, and wilt hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, the camels, the oxen, upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous murrain, and the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is in the children's of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now, you would think by this time he'd be impressed and would let them go. And the fact that it was obvious now that God is certainly in this and that he is dealing with him. Now, again, may I say that the land of Egypt at that time was a land of zoolatry, the worship of the entire animal world. And Apis was the black bull of Egypt and was worshipped. And you find a great deal of that in that land. And so here, what you have is really the worship of a sick cow. And I call your attention to it again. God must have smiled at this because there is humor in the Bible. And I imagine he smiled at this judgment. But you see, he's now leveling his judgments against this awful, frightful institution of idolatry that was in the land of Egypt and had such a hold upon these people, and not only these people, but also upon God's people. For they had gone into idolatry at this time, as we shall see later on. And then in verse 8, why we come here to this statement, and I'll begin reading. The Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man upon beast. Now, I don't know this, but I assume since this one was done right in the presence of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was the first one that got the boils, by the way. And verse 11, "...and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians." And you see, with Pharaoh all the time were these magicians, a wise man. They were his counselors, and they got the boils also. You remember, they were able to duplicate the first three. But after that, they were not able to. They were unable to duplicate the one that had to do with the lice upon the dust of the earth. And they now 
are being infected by one of the judgments. Now, do you notice, for the first time, God is touching man as well as beast. It's affecting man personally, his own physical body. And this, of course, meant that the priests in that day were spotless. They could not serve in the temple with any kind of a breaking out or sickness. And now the magicians, they take off. Believe me, they're gone. The priests, well, they can't serve. They're unclean. And so they are having really a holiday as far as all this worship in Egypt. And you can imagine what it was. I walked over part of the ruins of the city of Memphis. And by the way, practically all the ruins are gone now. But they know something of the extent of that great city that was there. And down one thoroughfare and up another, temple after temple. I forget how many hundreds of temples, well over a thousand, that were in that city and priests serving at all of them. Now, you can imagine what it did, why it brought to a halt all of that false worship and everything slowed down to a standstill and all the bright lights went off. I noticed reading at the time that they had the strike up at Las Vegas there on Glitter Gulch, where they probably have more neon lights than any place in the world, I'm told. And I haven't been through there in years, but I'm told that if you fly over it at night, why, you think the sun's coming up. It's so bright. Well, when they had the strike, the lights went out, the hotels closed up, the people left. And it brought a deadness. It was so startling that they had to settle the strike and begin immediately. Well, you can imagine what's happened here in the land of Egypt. False religion is out of business, and they're all got boils. They can't serve. And so you have up a sign on all the temples closed because of sickness. We read now in verse 12, it reveals the condition again of the heart of Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You see, God's making him stand to it. Now, even when he himself has boils, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And how many times have we read that God says, Let my people go. And he's not letting them go yet. You can see his heart is indeed hardened. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants, upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there's none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in every deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Now, verse 17, "...as yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go." Now, God says that I'm going to use you, Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power throughout all the earth. And actually, God uses the wrath of man really to praise him. And here is a case of it. Behold, tomorrow about this time... 
Well, I cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof even until now. Now, the land of Egypt is a land of no rain. I was told when I was there that they had less than one inch of rain. And the year that I was there, it was, of course, early spring in long about May, and they had not had a drop of rain that year. And I do not know how much they got during the year, but it averages out less than an inch of rain. Now they're going to have a rain, and the kind of which they could do without. And we are told here, verse 19, "...send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die." He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. You see, it's a question here whether you believe God or not. God says, get your servants in, your cattle in. Many didn't believe God, and they were judged by the hail and were destroyed, of course. But God gave them a chance, you see. It's just a question of whether you believe God or not, and that holds good today. Verse 21, "...and he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field." And that was, of course, to a great disadvantage. Now, Isis is the goddess of the air, and you find a great deal that's said about her in the religion of Egypt. And she's one of the principal members of the Theophany, by the way. She is one that was very prominent in the land of Egypt. Now, hail is actually directed against her. But you see, it touches mankind, and that's very important to note. Now we have in verse 22, "...and the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man, upon beast, and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail from the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt, since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field, and brake every tree of the field. Now, those that didn't believe God, naturally they made no provision for protection. That's the same message that God has for the world today, that judgment is coming, and that a man's not wise today to go on as if nothing is going to happen. It was that way in the days of Noah. It will be that when he comes again in judgment. And here, you have a great many didn't believe God. All God does is ask you to believe Him. Now again, we are reminded of the fact in verse 26, "...only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail." You see, from here on, the land of Goshen is spared from the plagues that are coming on the land. And we find here that the plague now of the hail had a tremendous effect upon the land of Egypt. For instance, we're told in verse 31, 
and the flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was bold, so that flax was for the garments, for clothing, barley for food. And the wheat and the rice also, we are told, was smitten. They weren't grown up. It was all beaten down. And this was a judgment against the foodstuff and the clothing. You see, God is now striking at man, and Pharaoh was smitten first. And he ought to wake up, but he's not. He's hardened. We're told here, verse 35, "...and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened." neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. He would not yield yet. Well, you wonder what it's going to take to make it possible for this man to let them go. All right, now notice God prepares to move again. And here he says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. Now, you see, God has many reasons for doing what he does. One of them was to make this man Pharaoh to reveal what was in his heart, that he's this kind of a man that he was a godless man. You see, God could have taken the children of Israel immediately out of the land of Egypt without even making any contact with Pharaoh. And many people would say, the critic would, and many, I'm sure, would offer the objection, well, God certainly was not fair to Pharaoh. He should have given him an opportunity to have let the children go and given this man an opportunity for salvation. Well, friend, that's exactly what God has done. He didn't take them out immediately now. But also, God is demonstrating to his own people before he got them in the wilderness what he was able to do and that he was able to not only deliver them out of Egypt, but he was well able to bring them into the land that he had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, I read here in verse 2 of chapter 10, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son, thy son's sons, what things I have wrought in Egypt. And at the Passover now, for almost 4,000 years, it's the oldest religious holiday that there is, why the story has been told about how God delivered his people out of the land of Egypt. Now, verse 3, And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail." and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, the houses of thy servants, the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's father have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. 
And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servant said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? Now, what he's saying is just simply this. The land of Egypt is being absolutely demolished. And it's destroyed by these plagues that are coming on the land. How long are you going to go along with this type of thing? Why not at least make a compromise with these people? And so we find here that Moses and Aaron now are brought in again unto Pharaoh. And he said unto them, now here's his third compromise. Go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We'll go with our young, with our old, with our sons, with our daughters, with our flocks, and with our herds will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. Not so, go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. The compromise now is this. Moses, you go on out in the wilderness with the man, with the adults, but you leave the children in the land, and you go out without them. Well, Pharaoh, I think, suspected that if they got three days in the wilderness, they would keep going. And so he wants to stop that, and he knows if he keeps the children, they'd not run away. They would come back for their children. Now, this again has a corollary. It's a pattern for believers today. I think that as Pharaoh tested and tempted this man Moses with a compromise, that the child of God is today tempted with a compromise. In fact, you will find these four compromises parallel in the Christian life. Now, first of all, of course, is be a Christian, but don't be narrow. And then you be a Christian, but don't go too far in this. If you insist on doing certain things, well, don't make a practice of it. In other words, compromise. Now, this, as someone has said, is probably the most subtle temptation of all. In other words, there are a great many people are told today, and a great many Christians, I'm of the opinion I'm speaking to a great many Christians like this right now. Yes, you go ahead and be a Christian, but remember that your children are being brought up in the world in Egypt, and you want to prepare them for Egypt so that today... We have a great conflict in the average Christian home. I've seen this again and again. There is this matter of the child being brought up under an educational system that's absolutely contrary to Christianity. And he's told, well, he must get along in the world, and that the child of God's in the world, and that the child of God, since he's to be in the world, he's to get in the world and make all the money he can and get involved in the world. Friends, I've been a pastor a long time, over 30 years. I haven't learned very much, but I've learned a few things. And I have seen again and again and again a godly father and mother, and yet 
They want everything for their children. They say, we want them to have the best education. We want them to get up in the world. We want them to succeed. We want them to be successful. We want them to get rich. And believe me, one after another has fallen. One after another's departed from the Lord. This is the most subtle temptation that comes today to Christian parents. And I personally think that's the problem right now in the Christian home where we've got young people in rebellion. What did you expect, my friend, when you sent them to these worldly institutions and he came home one day, a uh, hippie or something even worse, and you say, my, how could he do that brought up in a Christian home? He did that because actually he wasn't brought up in a Christian home. The parents are lovely Christian people, but they didn't train, really, the children in the Christian values and in Christian things. They were so anxious and ambitious for them to get on in the world, and they've lost them. Oh, how they have been lost today. This is the most subtle temptation of it all. And I've spent time with it because I think it's rather important. Now we have the next plague that's coming up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day, and all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there was no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. And they covered the face of the whole earth, that is, in Egypt, so that the land was darkened. And they did eat every herb of the land, all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. Now, there are several things here that are revealed in this judgment. The judgment is that of the locusts. And you'll notice, first of all, that they were not caused to appear miraculously and actually does not seem to be a miracle like some of the others are described to us. But they're not any less miraculous. The east wind brought them from somewhere else. Obviously, this east wind that had come up brought them, if you'll notice, from somewhere over in Asia. And they certainly were common over in that area. And they've been brought over a wide expanse of desert, and I guess they were pretty hungry when they got into the Green Nile Valley, and they absolutely stripped everything. Now, the locust was probably the worst plague that they've had so far, because the locust is used in Scripture as a picture definitely of judgment. You have a great locust plague that Joel describes. And these locust plagues of the past are a picture of the judgment that is yet to come. And you will find that 
that is mentioned in the Word of God as you get over to the book of Revelation, the great locust plagues that are coming upon the land. In Joel's prophecy, you have the great judgment of the locusts in the past, which is a matter of history. And then Joel moves on to say that there's coming that kind of a judgment. And locusts, therefore, are used as instruments of judgment, and that's what you have here. So they've come over the land, and they probably have had the greatest effect upon the land than anything else that has come upon that land in that day. Now I'm going to drop down here in verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, this is the first time Pharaoh has made any kind of admission like this at all. You see, it took the plague of locusts. And you'll notice that there is method in the manner in which God is dealing with these people and that land and with Pharaoh in that day. The judgments are given in a systematic, orderly way, directed first at the different idols in the land of Egypt against zoolatry. Now he's beginning to direct these as definite plagues that are working a tremendous hardship upon the people to convince Pharaoh. And this last one, the locust one, has certainly had its effect. He's called for Aaron and Moses to come in, and he's made a confession. He says, "'Forgive my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God.'" that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and treated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts, cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. Now, this man Pharaoh... The minute that the plague is removed, why, he changes his mind and he goes back to his original position. And God's going to force him, you know, to let the children of Israel go. So after the locusts, why, there are actually to be only two more plagues. And this now is the next one, which is darkness. We speak of Egyptian darkness. Why, this is directed against the highest deity, the idol, in the entire worship of the people of Egypt. And notice this now. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And have you ever been in a place like that? Well, the only time I've actually felt darkness was down in Carlsbad Caverns years ago when they used to turn out the lights and sing Rock of Ages. But they had the criticism of that from some of these unbelievers, and so they don't sing Rock of Ages anymore, I'm told. But that was very effective. And I've never been in darkness like that. Well, this was the kind of darkness that was over the land of Egypt. Even darkness which may be felt. Verse 22, And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. 
but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And this was definitely a miraculous sort of thing. And we find now Pharaoh's ready again for a fourth compromise. And this fourth one is the last compromise because after this he's really going to have to stand to it and permit the children of Israel go. Verse 24, And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. Now, you would think that just leaving their flocks and their herds would be a real compromise. In other words, Pharaoh has come a long ways in making concessions to Moses, and you'd think this one would be agreeable. Well, I find in this, again, a corollary or a parallel with the children of Israel and with us today. God called them to get out of the land of Egypt, lock, stock, and barrel. And not only were they to take their children, their children's not to be left there for the schooling and the education of Egypt. They are not to be a success in Egypt. They are to go and take their place with God's people. And we've said that was the most subtle temptation a Christian has today. We expect to bring up our children in the world. We want them to be a success in the world today. And then we wonder why the world wins them over and we lose them. Well, it's quite obvious to see. I heard a Christian mother tell about how her son had gone away to a godless school and how he had gone up in the world. She didn't mention to me that he'd lost his faith, although he had at that time. But she told about how he was being advanced. He had graduated from this school, given a very fine position. And he's high up, by the way, today. And his name has been in public print many times. And then she came with tears in her eyes as she told me the sad story of how she lost her boy, that he turned his back upon everything. Well, that's the way she started him out. And naturally, she lost him. That's a subtle temptation. Now, this one here is one that gets people today, too. Leave your flocks and your herds. And I find that there are a great many Christians. They say, yes, we want to serve the Lord. We are faithful in our church. We support our pastor. And we give to the Lord's work, and we are for missionaries. But have you ever noticed the way they do business? They do business in the land of Egypt. Their flocks and their herds are down there. And they're very much interested in those flocks and herds. Let me tell you, they'll put those flocks and herds above everything else. And if they have to make a choice to serve God or to go make a trip to Egypt for the flocks and herds, you know what direction they go. They go with the flocks and herds. It's interesting that a great many Christians say, well, you know, that on Sunday I serve the Lord, but during the week I'm out in the old cold, hard business world, and I'm afraid a great many so-called Christians out in the old cold, hard business world today live just like the old cold, hard business world. And you can't tell them from the others. Their lives are just like the ones in the land of Egypt. And they certainly have all their investments 
in the world today. I'm of the opinion that the rapture of the church would break the hearts of a great many Christians. You know what it would do? It would separate a great many Christians from their investments that they have today in the world. You'll have to go off and leave that safety deposit box, that savings account, those stocks and bonds, that real estate, all that you had given your time and your heart to, you're going off and leave it at the rapture of the church. And I believe it'll be a heartbreak for some people to do that. Now, notice what Moses says to this compromise. And believe me, Moses makes a real distinction here. There'll be no compromise. Compromise is immoral. Morley, years ago, said compromise is immoral and a candidate for president of the United States quite a few years ago, back in the, I guess, in the late 50s, said that compromise is not immoral. Well, it is, friends, always is for a child of God. And in verse 25, listen to him now, "...and Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God." Our cattle also shall go with us. Now listen to this. There shall not a hoof be left behind. Moses said when we go out of the land of Egypt, we're not even going to leave a hoof track back in the land. Thank God for Moses. He won't even leave a hoof track. He'll avoid every appearance of evil. And did you know that the Red Sea washed out all of those hoof tracks? Remember, the cattle went over also, as well as the people. And when that Red Sea came back, it washed out all the tracks. Moses told him, he said, we won't even leave a hoof track when we leave this land. We're leaving nothing in the land of Egypt. How about it, Christian friend? If the Lord Jesus came at this moment and took you out of this world, and you say, oh, that would be wonderful... Would it be wonderful? What are you leaving in the world that you've got your heart in today? Would it break your heart to go off and leave your real estate, to leave your wealth, to leave what you've accumulated, actually to leave your unsaved relatives as your sons and daughters? Moses said, when we leave Egypt, we won't even leave a hoof track. This is terrific, by the way. Now notice, for therefore must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come thither. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Now, God's going to begin now to make him face up to it. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me. Take heed to thyself. See my face no more. For in that day thou seest my face, thou shalt die. And Moses said, Thou hast spoken well. I will see thy face again no more. <laughs> They're going to leave, by the way, and going to leave shortly. And this is God's plan and program. Now in chapter 11 here, we come now to the last chapter in this section of the contest with Pharaoh. And actually, there are ten plagues. Some would say eleven plagues. I'm of the opinion that you might put down 11, but at least a minimum of 9. And so here is what I would call the 10th one. Now, in chapter 11, verse 1, "...and the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, 
Afterwards he'll let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. Now, I'd like to offer an explanation right here. We'll have this before us again. But actually, what we have in this matter of borrowing, it means they were collecting back wages. You see what had happened. They had served here in the land of Egypt as slaves, and they hadn't been paid anything. And so now they are to be paid. And this is what they're to do. The word literally is ask of his neighbor. Go and ask for your back wages. That's the thought that is here. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians now glad to pay them all to get rid of them. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now, in one sense, the contest is over, but actually not, and it's still a battle of the gods. Now, the gods of Egypt always claim the firstborn of both man and beast that belong to the gods. Now, God takes theirs that belong to them. But he's going to make a difference between the children of Israel and the Egyptians. But the difference now is not just that there will be no death angel passing over the land of Egypt, the death angel will pass over the land of Egypt because there's no difference in God's presence. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, actually. And so the thing that will make the difference, there will be now the blood of a lamb put on a doorpost. And this will be the beginning of the oldest religious holiday that there is. And it's the Passover feast. And that Passover is one of the most eloquent portraits of the Lord Jesus that you have in the Old Testament. Now, friends, we have come to a high point in the book of Exodus. It's the institution of the Passover, and we need to put down at the very beginning this statement where Paul says, Christ, our Passover, 
is offered for us. And that is important for us to see, by the way, that we're going to see Christ in this particular place here. Now let me read, beginning chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, this brings us to what I have called a brand new division of the book of Exodus. The first was a deliverer. Now it's the deliverance. And the deliverance is actually not by Moses. The deliverance is first by blood. That's the Passover feast, the death of the firstborn. And then we have in chapters 13 and 14, crossing the Red Sea and the destruction of the army of Egypt. And that's by power. God delivered them by blood and by power. And redemption, friends, today is by blood and by power. The blood that the Lord Jesus shed for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And then the power of the Holy Spirit in making this real and making it effectual in our sinful hearts. For it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. So it's the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross for us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that is important to see here in the redemption. Now, we have here that God says, this is the beginning of months for you. Actually, this is where it all begins. This is the birthday of the nation, actually. And yet, we'll see an emphasis not put upon the nation, but really upon the family. The emphasis is there. That was true, we saw in Genesis. But now Israel entered Egypt as a family, and they make their exit now as a nation overnight. But the interesting point for us to consider here, God did not place the emphasis on the nation, but on the family here. Now, the families were the building blocks out of which the nation was made. You remember Pharaoh forced them to make bricks without straw, but God had them make the bricks of the family for the building of a nation out of the straws of individuals. And we'll find that here. There is an old cliché, it's epigrammatic to say it, I know, but it's true. No nation is stronger than the families of that nation. Now, we're going to watch God make bricks with plenty of straw. He has a lot of individual, and the Passover is the oldest religious holiday known to man. It's not a national holiday in the sense that Yom Kippur is, the Day of Atonement, but it is a religious holiday, and it was a family affair. God redeemed the individual in the family. Now, this is to be, though, the birthday of the nation. This is the beginning of months, and the zero hour has come. Here is where the countdown begins for the exodus out of Egypt. And notice now what he says in verse 3, "...speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, 
in the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Now, there are two prominent points of emphasis in this verse here. You can see it's a family celebration that we're going to have. First is the blood, and the second is the house or the family. The lamb speaks, of course, of the blood that will be put on the door, folks. This is a great emphasis. Now, God's putting on the family, though they've become a nation, and he'll deliver the nation. But he does it by families and the families by individuals. Notice, every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. You see, this is getting it right down to the family, to each house. Now, listen to this verse, verse 4. And if the household be too little for the lamb. Well, it doesn't say anything about the lamb being too little for the household. That wouldn't happen. The lamb is sufficient, friends. The way this is presented, the lamb is adequate. If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Now God goes right down to the individual in the family. Every man shall be counted in on this. You take the lamb for a family. But here's a man and his wife. They are childless. They have no children. Or maybe their children are married and moved off somewhere else. Well, then he joins maybe with his neighbor who's in the same position. It's just he and his wife. So they get together and they divide the lamb according to the individuals that are there. Now, it may be that there is a man next door that's got half a dozen or maybe a dozen children. Well, before you decide to bring those two families together, make sure that each individual will get part of the lamb. You see, this is to be a personal, private matter. The redemption is for the nation, yes, but it centers in the family, and it must be accepted and received by each individual in that family. The Passover, I said, is a family affair. And then notice how important that is. God gives them here just the modus operandi by which God saved individual Israelites. It's not because they're a member of a nation or belong to a family, but an individual. You remember, we have the story, and this ought to throw light on many problems and many questions that come to us here. And one is, well, was the family of the Philippian jailer saved because the Philippian jailer believed. No, each member of his family had to have a transaction with the lamb, had to partake of the lamb. That was true here. Every member had to exhibit his faith in this way. Or he was out, by the way. And so when we say that the Philippian jailer and his family were saved because of the faith of the Philippian jailer, you just didn't read that verse aright. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy family. Well, somebody says, it says then, if you believe your family. No, your family will have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they'll be saved. Here is the picture of our redemption, and let's look at the picture. Each member, every man according to his eating, shall make your count for the Lamb. Each one will have to participate and partake of it in order to come in under the blessing, you see, and the redemption of the blood that's out on the doorposts of the family. Now, this is a fateful night in Egypt, and it's the last of the plagues, by the way. And the land of Goshen, you remember, was spared during the last three plagues. God's people were delivered from judgment. But you see, they're not redeemed, and they have to now be redeemed and exhibit faith in the blood. That evening, Israel was doing a very odd thing. And if you go inside any of the homes that night where the blood was sprinkled on the doorpost, you'll notice something's taking place. Now, let me read verse 5 now. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, this lamb is to speak of Christ. And the Israelite shall kill it. It's for the family. It's to be put on the doorpost. But each one will have to exhibit faith. Now, here is the thing that is amazing. Verse 6. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now, I'd like to call your attention to something here, friends. Israel shall kill it. Well, each family had a lamb. There must have been thousands of lambs slain that night. But when God talks about it, he says, Israel shall slay it in the evening. That lamb is speaking of another lamb. Christ, our Passover, is offered for us. And God looked at it as one lamb. You see, all of that's pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Now, will you notice here, there must be that evidence of faith in what they're doing. Faith in the adequacy of the blood. Verse 7, "...and they shall take of the blood, strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it." Now, the children of Israel were to put the blood outside on the door, and the death angel will pass over. Now, I think that we have here a picture that will answer another question for us. Now, there are many people that have written in, and they say, at the time of the rapture, what about the little children of believers? What about them? Here are little ones that have not reached the age of accountability. You mean to say that the Lord would take mom and pop and go off and leave two little precious children there? No, friends, God won't do that. Let's read this. 
They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they eat the lamb on the inside, that is, by faith, to partake of Christ. But the little one doesn't know what's taking place. Well, will the little one be left in the house when the children of Israel go out of the land of Egypt? If the little one happens to be just a little one, hasn't reached the age of accountability, will the little one be slain? Oh, no. No, friends. The blood covered it all. <laughs> the death angel passed over all of them. And I assume from this picture that the children that have not reached the age of accountability in every home at the time of the rapture will be taken, covered by the blood, if you please. God would not leave them any more than he left them in the days when the children of Israel were redeemed and went out of the land of Egypt. Now, will you notice, it says, "...they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it." Now, each one of these, of course, had a tremendous message and meaning in everything that they did. This speaks, of course, of the fellowship of the family. The family were together in this. Now, I want to make a statement now, and I'm sure I'll get reaction to this, but I don't mind it at all. We today, in our very highly organized Bible schools and in our church programs, we put the juniors here and the junior highs there and the high school over here. Can you well understand that Moses telling them to put all the children in the nursery over at the palace of Pharaoh, because that's where he was raised, and to take the juniors down to the volleyball court? May I say to you, there'd been a lot of children would have missed out that night on the Exodus. May I say this is done by families. And I'm afraid that our churches today have been guilty of dividing families. We ought to have families together in church. I'm a square, I grant that. But you see, I started off as a young preacher up in Middle Tennessee. And I was pastor of a city church, however. But I used to go in the summer because I guess I'm a country boy. And I went up in Middle Tennessee and held meetings in those country churches and had the best time of my life. And I'd start preaching at night, and you'd see a mother sitting out there with a little one in her arms. It may be restless. I learned to out-talk them. My, if I can't out-talk a six-month-old child, well, something's radically wrong. So I learned to preach above them. And that little one go to sleep. The mother would pick it up, take it to the back of the church. They had a pallet there, put the little one down. She'd come back down. She's sitting there with her husband and maybe two or three other children. And then here comes up another, and she's like popcorn all over the place. These little ones going to sleep. And they told me they'd had a preacher there the year before me. They'd had a meeting, and one night they put down about like they did every night, about a dozen babies. And all of a sudden he stopped. And he said, you know, I'm a greater preacher than Paul the Apostle. And the people were amazed. He paused, and they all had the question in their mind, how in the world could he be greater than Paul the Apostle? He says, Paul preached to midnight and only put one to sleep. He says, I haven't preached but 30 minutes, and I put a dozen to sleep. On that basis, I did the same thing, my friends. You see, they did it by families. And I don't know. Those little churches weren't very well organized. 
but they sure did have some wonderful saints of God, and they produced some very wonderful men and women that grew up in that area. In fact, it's out of areas like that in this land where the backbone of this nation was produced. I don't know where we're producing them today, but I'll be honest with you, I have very much confidence in the hippies. I'm very sorry that I don't, but I have no confidence in this revolutionary crowd that's on our campuses today. I think we've done it wrong, friends. Here's the pattern that was given. The family was to do it together. Now, we are told here they are to eat it roast with fire. Fire speaks of judgment. That must be the judgment of sin. And unleavened bread, you see, that speaks of Christ as the one we're to feed upon. And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now, there's different meanings that have been attached to the bitter herbs. May I say to you, I hear sometimes the idea given as if we are trying to sell something. When we ask people to accept Christ, it won't always be sweet, friends. There are bitter herbs to go with it. And he says in verse 9, "...eat not of it raw." Raw, you see, there must be the judgment of sin in our lives. When we come to Christ, friends, we come as a sinner. He died for our sins, and that's where we begin with him, nor sodden at all with water. In other words, it must be just trusting him and him alone. And I'm afraid there's some people who trust water today. But roast with fire, there must be judgment. His head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof, all of it is to be roasted. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. And friends, when you come to Christ, this speaks of Christ, our Passover offered to us. When we come to him, we should have our loins girded, ready to get out of the world and no longer involved with the world. I don't believe that you're converted and live a sinful life. We had a remarkable instance here of a woman who ran a liquor store in South Los Angeles, got converted. She called me up and she said, I'm getting out of the liquor business, and if you tell me to, I'll take a hammer and then break every bottle. I told her, I said, you go sell it. And she got out of the liquor business. <laughs> she was a wonderful Christian, by the way. May I say, you'll get out of Egypt if the blood's been put on the doorpost because you'd eat it with your loins girded, ready to go, if you please. How tremendous this is. Verse 12, "...for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. I'll smite all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt." I'll execute judgment, I'm the Lord. Now, all of these plagues have been directed at each idol individually. Now, all of them demanded the firstborn. God says, I'm now turning the guns against all the idols. Now, will you notice? And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And God says that the people were not saved because they were seed of Abraham. 
why the Egyptians could have obeyed and they would have been saved. God says, when I see the blood. They were not saved because they were doing the best they could and paid the honest debts and because they were good people. God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. And they were not to run out during the night and look at the blood. They were to have confidence and faith in it. God says, when I see the blood. He didn't say when they saw it. And they were not saved because of their thoughts or their feelings, their experiences, not because they regarded the blood. God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. To them it was just faith. Not saved because they went through the ceremony and were circumcised. God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. They were not saved because they belonged to the church. The death angel wasn't making a survey of the neighborhood. When I see the blood, God says, I'll pass over. They were not to open the window and tell the death angel how good they were and how much charity work they did. If a man had put his neck out of the window that night, he'd have died. God says, when I see the blood, nothing is to be added to it. Who was saved that night? Those who believed God, those where the blood was sprinkled, those that had trusted the blood. I say to you candidly, I do not understand it completely, but I set my seal that God is true, and today it's the shed blood of Christ that'll save you, nothing else, my friend. Now, these are the instructions that God gave, and he said that when he saw the blood, he would pass over. Now, that was not some mystic or superstitious sign at all. There's a great principle that runs all the way through the Word of God, and it is without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In other words, God cannot arbitrarily or big-heartedly shut his eyes to sin and do nothing about it, any more than a judge. When there is brought before him one guilty, the judge should apply the law and the penalty should be paid. And I think, frankly, our problem in America today has been the laxity that has come in the enforcement of law. The important thing is that in God's universe, while law is inexorable, and the soul that sinneth it must die, therefore life must be given up for me a sinner. You see, the death sentence is on all of us, now, if you will accept Christ by faith, you'll be saved. Now, that night in Egypt, on every home, there would be the death of the firstborn. The death angel went through, and the blood was an indication. The application of it on the doorposts and the lentils was an indication of faith, you see. That answers the appropriation of a personal faith. And that was all that was necessary. They didn't put the blood out there and something else. They're good works. They didn't bring an offering like Cain. All that was necessary was just simply this. And the death angel, when he came, when he saw that, he passed over. There followed the Passover feast. And you will find out that when we get to Leviticus, that there'll be instructions given for the Passover. And then the feast of unleavened bread which actually was part of it, but took place really after the Passover. And in verse 14 I read, "...and this day shall be unto you for a memorial, 
and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses, for whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Now, actually, this had nothing to do with the death angel passing over. This was a feast of fellowship of those within, and it was a wonderful time of fellowship. It was duty, of course, God commanded it, and it was also a privilege. But it hadn't anything in the world to do with their salvation. It had to do with the fact that they were to have fellowship with God. Now, you will notice that they're not to eat leavened bread. And beginning here in verse 17, it says, "...ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread." For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. And they ate the unleavened bread on the wilderness march, you see, because they began the night of the Passover. And they then ate the bread for seven days. And you notice that it's unleavened bread. If they ate leavened bread, they were cut off. That means they were cut off from the fellowship. There'd be no fellowship at all. Now, right here is put down a principle concerning leaven. Leaven is mentioned here, oh, about, I suppose, eight or nine times from verse 14 down through verse 20. Well, let me read verse 19. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which be leaven, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. Now, this is very important because it puts down a principle here that when you move into the New Testament, it doesn't go into reverse and mean the opposite. Leaven is a principle of evil. It represents evil. And it represents that which is offensive. Now, we'll have occasion to refer to that again. But when you get to the 13th of Matthew and you read about a woman hiding leaven in three measures of meal, that leaven isn't the gospel. It couldn't be, because leaven is a principle of evil. Actually, the three measures of meals, the Word of God, and in it there has been put leaven today, and that's evil. There has been put unsound doctrine. And I am absolutely overwhelmed and amazed to see the amount of error that's being taught today and how gullible people are that just go for it. fact of the matter is, the rackets, and there are many of them, do lots better than those of us that attempt to just teach the simple Word of God. You'll find out we're having our problems but not the cults or isms. They're having no problem at all. This matter of leaven, it's evil, friends, and it has been put into the teaching of the Word. All the cults and isms use the Bible, but they put leaven with it. 
And that is the thing that the children of Israel were told to avoid. And when our Lord made it very clear that it couldn't be good, he said, "...beware of the leaven of the Pharisees." And actually the disciples at that time thought he meant physical bread. Then they understand later that he meant the doctrine of the Pharisees. That which is evil, you say. And that principle is put down here. Now, unleavened bread is not palatable. There are a great many people today that don't like the study of the Bible. I recognize that. A great many people love to come to a church for the social time or the music or the beauty of the place, but not for the Word of God. They don't want the Word of God because actually unleavened bread is not very palatable. I happened to be in Israel during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I stayed in the Dan Carmel Hotel in Haifa. And friends, I want to say very candidly, I never got as tired of unleavened bread in my life because I was brought up in the South where we had hot biscuits, the kind that just puff right up, and not unleavened bread. Oh, but the night it was over, and they brought out the bread the real article, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, because that's good to the natural man, you see. And they brought out lamb fixed. Oh, it was delicious. It was really a feast, not only for those of us that were there that were Gentiles and Christians, but also for those that were in the land, citizens of the nation Israel. Unleavened bread, friends, is not as delightful, and it's not as palatable, not as tasty as the leavened bread is. But may I say that the Word of God is the food that's for the child of God. Now, this is a great principle put down here, as you can see. Now, he goes on and says in verse 22, "...and ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you." Now, there are several things to note here. I wonder if it had occurred to you as we have been looking at this matter of the Passover, and now for two times we've talked about the putting of the blood on the doorpost. Have you wondered just how they did it? How did they put the blood on the doorpost? Well, hyssop is a little plant that grows around rocks in a damp place. It is a fluffy type of a little plant, and it was dipped into the blood and then applied. It was the applicator. And again, the hyssop represents to me faith. That is the way that the blood is applied to your heart and my life. Someone says, how do you apply? By faith, trusting what Christ has done for us when he died for us. Now, we find here that God goes into a great deal of detail in telling these people about how they are to do at this particular time. He gives specific instructions.
Now in verse 29, why we see now this is the last judgment, the last plague that's coming on the land of Egypt, and God had prepared his people from it. Now, the land of Goshen had escaped the last three plagues, but would not escape here unless there was the blood on the doorpost. And any Egyptian could put it on his doorpost. All he'd had to do was just believe God, and the death angel wouldn't have gone in and asked, are you an Israelite? That's going to surprise a lot of people someday when they're going to find out that the Lord's not going to ask the name of the church you belong to. Because if you have trusted Christ, the Spirit of God has baptized you into the body of believers, and that is today, of course, the true church. Now, will you notice, and I begin reading now at verse 29 of the twelfth chapter of Exodus, "...came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne." under the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house, for there was not one dead. You see, the firstborn in each house. This is the last judgment. In other words, God up to this point has not touched human life. He's not taken human life, but now he does. And don't say that God is a murderer. The Lord giveth, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you are able to create life, then you'll be able to take it away. But wait until you can do that. Now will you notice verse 30, "...and Pharaoh rose up in the night." You see, this is something that was tragic. Now, verse 31, he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up, get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks, your herds, as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Poor old Pharaoh now, he's had to give up. Up to this point, He's been reluctant, but now what has happened, it's reached in and touched his own son. And believe me, this is where you really get an individual. Now, you see, God didn't begin with this plague. He began way back there by just throwing down a rod, and that rod becoming a crocodile. That could have been the message that if he had believed God, the children of Israel could have gone out then and he'd spared his people these judgments. Therefore, don't blame it on God. God is making him release the children of Israel, which he was reluctant to do. And the Egyptians, I'm reading verse 33, "...and the Egyptians were urging upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men." They didn't know where this would end. And, of course, what would be the next step? If God now took the firstborn, what could he do next? Well, the next thing to do would be to bring death to all the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh and the people said, We want you out of here because we're afraid what will come next. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their knee troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders, 
and the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment. This matter of borrowing is they're collecting back dues. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them. The literal back of borrowed is they ask. And here they lent, they gave unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Actually, the Egyptians owed them so much that when they left, they spoiled them. Now, verse 37, "...and the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children." Now, you can see where uh, Dr. Kyle got his figures on which he attempted to base the number that came out of the land of Egypt. Well, how many did come out of the land of Egypt? We're going to get to that when we get to the book of Numbers, actually. But it would seem that there came out of the land of Egypt well over a million people. There were 600,000 on foot that were men. This had nothing to do with the children or the women. And then here our attention is called to something else. Verse 38, "...and a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle." Now, this mixed multitude will be the trouble in the camp. Who were the mixed multitude? Well, let me stop for just a moment, because in the book of Numbers, in the 11th chapter, I'll go into a great deal of detail about them, because they were the troublemakers. Well, factually, they were half-breeds. An Egyptian had married a Jewish maiden, or a Hebrew had married an Egyptian maid. And then there was the offspring. And now the question comes to him, long as they lived in the land of Egypt, there's no question, no decision to make. But now, what shall he do? Shall the half-breed, shall he go up with the children of Israel, or shall he stay? Well, many of them didn't know. Many of them didn't go up. And some thought they should go up. And then they wondered whether, when the going got hard and difficult, they wondered whether they hadn't made a mistake. And they were the first ones to complain. And by the way, they were not Israelites in the true sense of the word. That's been a big problem for Israel over there today, is a half-breed, a Gentile mother. Does that mean that the offspring are Israelites, are the citizens of Israel? It's always been a problem with them, and it's always caused them trouble. And by the way, we have that same thing in the church. we got people that join the church. They're not saved. They're just part of the mixed multitude. And always the complaining and trouble comes from that crowd. I've never believed that a troublemaker in church is really a child of God. Now, I've been a pastor a long time, but let's understand what we mean by troublemakers. But we'll see that when we get to the 11th chapter of the book of Numbers, and that will be coming up. Now, we find here that the children of Israel now, they're leaving. They're taking off. Verse 39, "...and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, 
because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. In other words, the children of Israel were not really prepared for the journey. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. It came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It's a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And as we said before, this is the oldest observance, the Passover of any religious holiday in the world today. And it goes back to the exodus out of the land of Egypt. They're never to forget that until the king comes and the millennium is established, and then they'll forget it. We'll see that, of course, later. And we are told that only those that were Israelites were to eat the Passover. Now we're told, verse 47, "...all the congregation of Israel shall keep it, when a stranger shall sojourn with you, and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof." In other words, that would be an act of faith on the part of a Gentile to come up and under the covenant God made with Abraham. Now we are told in verse 49, "...one law shall be to him that is home-born, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Thus did all the children of Israel, and the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies." Now we're going to follow through here a section in which we're going to see them cross the Red Sea and then the experiences that these people had in the wilderness, which correspond to Christian experience today.